My name is Elizabeth Bromley. I go by Beth. I'm a psychiatrist and a medical anthropologist here at UCLA, and I'm the director of the DMH-UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. And uh, really excited to talk with you today about a, a pretty challenging topic, recovery-oriented transitions from full-service partnership. We're going to talk about when, why, and how to skillfully graduate clients who have made gains in FSP and may do well in a less intensive clinical program. Uh, I want to tell you a little of where I'm coming from on this topic of transitioning clients from FSP. It, it does happen to be um, relevant to the topic. Um, so I'm a psychiatrist at the VA and I've been in the MICM program, Mental Health Intensive Case Management, since 2004. And MICM is a lot like an FSP program in that it's based on the assertive community treatment model. It's a multidisciplinary team. We are mostly in the field and we work with highly complex veterans with severe mental illness who uh, often have had uh, multiple hospitalizations or challenges with medication adherence, uh, any number of risky situations, problems, maintaining housing. Uh, and as a result of that, they uh, come to our team and we work very closely with them. Um, the MICM program is a nationwide program at the VA. It's really the VA's version of assertive community treatment. Uh, there are about 112 teams across the country, and they work uh, as, a, as a unit, really. There's a good deal of uh, coordination across the MICM sites around the country. And um, recovery-oriented transitions, discharging from the program, it's, it's always been a bit of a challenge for MICM teams. And it's one thing that we, on my team, um, began to try to think about systematically. And uh, uh, that's where I'll speak to, uh, to uh, those issues today. And I'll try to highlight the ways that, you know, the VA is a little bit different than uh, the, the, the DMH context, but nonetheless, I think the principles will apply to the work that you do as well. So first, I'm just gonna go through some definitions, some terminology, clarify uh, what we mean by a recovery-oriented uh, transition and other transitions. Um, then I'll talk a bit about what we know from the scientific literature about transitions from intensive programs like FSP. And then I'm going to talk a good deal about making a decision about transition. Um, what gets in the way? How do we identify that someone may be ready? And what are some of the tools that are available, decision aids in particular, tools that we might be able to use as teams to think this through? And then in the last part of the talk, I'm going to walk you through a process that we've used that's we just called it a mock discharge. And as I get to it, I'll let you know why that name fits. Um, but it's a, a process over several months that teams can use to transition clients who are ready out of an intensive program like FSP. Really, we can use these words interchangeably, discharge, disenrollment, transition, any circumstance with someone in which someone leaves an FSP program, um, that could be a discharge or a disenrollment or a transition. Um, a recovery-oriented transition is intended to imply the circumstance in which a client meets all their treatment goals and they are able and ready to transition to a lower level of care or less intensive services. Sometimes we call this a graduation um, or a successful discharge. Um, these are all interchangeable words. You might want to use any combination of them with different clients, um, but that's really what's meant by recovery-oriented transition, kind of a graduation. Um, there are, of course, other kinds of changes for a client from within the FSP program, like transferring to another team, and those are uh, not things that I'll talk about today, but I will talk a little bit about disengagement and clients that aren't really ready to graduate, but they might mm, pull away from the team, and how do you think about that um, on, a, on a team? Many reasons, of course, that a client might leave 
a, an FSP program and a sort of community treatment program or any intensive program. As I said, the client, and this is actually from the disenrollment form at DMH, the client may have met all treatment goals. Um, they've, they've, they've met all the goals that you set, uh, end of their uh, program, one option. Um, another reason here, client doesn't need intensive level of services anymore. Now that's a little more complicated. I don't quite know what that means, this judgment that the client doesn't need an intensive level of services anymore, but you can understand that is one reason that would make sense for someone to leave a program. Maybe the team feels the client just isn't benefiting. Um, you know, they work very hard for the client, but it doesn't seem to make any impact. Um, it might be that they feel the client is just unwilling or not ready right now to take advantage of services. Um, so that could be another underlying rationale here. Um, but then of course, there are scenarios where a client decides to leave the program. Uh, there are uh, situations in which the client can't be found. Um, client may have moved to a higher level of care. Um, they may have moved out of the state, they may have moved elsewhere, but this higher level of care category is sort of moving, for instance, to a nursing home or jail. We sometimes think of a prison, uh, a, a carceral setting, a very structured setting, or even an IMD for a long period of time, a higher level care, more structured, more um, uh, controlled, and that would be a reason a client might, might leave. So here's a little bit of data about transition rates from FSP, and these are data on clients that were in the program between 2012 and 2016. And for clients who were identified in the program in 2012, 41% of them were still in the program in 2016. Um, but 19.2% of those clients had left the program because they'd successfully met their goals. So this sounds like the graduation fraction. Clients who leave the program within this period of time, and they do so because they've met their goals. And then here this list, um, the, 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 the larger group of clients, 40% of them who left the program, not because they met all their goals, not because they were super successful in the program, but other things happened to them and they uh, uh, were discharged from the program. So they moved to a higher level of care, they were detained, they uh, moved, they decided to discontinue, you know, simply uh, not, not on board with the program any longer. That's a larger group, much more heterogeneous, but about a fifth of the clients here had met their goals and had transitioned from the program. So this is a mixed picture here. There are lots of different ways that clients leave programs and providers in this scenario, we play either a passive role or an active role. And there's sometimes where we just, we have no role to play in this. The client is moving out of the state. The client clearly needs a nursing home and we manage to arrange a higher level of care for them. Um, sometimes we play a pretty passive role that not a lot we can do when the client just decides to leave. We may want uh, top to bottom for this client to stay in the program, um, but the client might really just insist on leaving. And uh, sometimes in some of those situations, we don't have a lot of control over what clients do. But when we're in a situation where the client is meeting some goals, has met a lot of goals, we may get to this feeling like, you know what, I don't know that she needs us as much any longer. That's a circumstance in which we can play a very important role, a quite active role in supporting the client to this transition and guiding them through the transition as well. Why would we work on this? Why would we try to get better being active about this? Um, there's a few reasons. Uh, this is a quote from a case manager that was a part of one of our research studies talking a bit about the hurdles toward transition. And this person says, 
I'm on board with the idea of transition. I think it's reasonable to discharge people from the program. I think otherwise the danger is it will become just some sort of mildly supportive program that extends off into the indefinite future. This is actually a really important point. Um, if a program like FSP that's highly intensive, uh, very uh, uh, deeply engaged with clients around, an array of elements in, in their life, sort of um, helping with services of all sorts for them. They're working on housing, you're working on physical health, you're working on benefits, you're working on relationships. So many things we do for clients. And if we don't target that very high value intensive uh, intervention in the right place, something becomes a little bit uh, 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 a, a little bit nonspecific about that approach. It becomes uh, just something mildly supportive. Who wouldn't like to have some help with things like housing and benefits and relationships? Um, but unless we're really focusing that energy on those who are most in need and who uh, really could most benefit from the support, the program itself kind of loses its way. Um, so there are other ways to think about this too. Obviously, if we don't work to transition clients who are very ready for transition, the program has less capacity. So someone who's very ill, very much in need, who needs a spot in the program is gonna be waiting. And uh, you know that uh, really doesn't, um, uh, it's, it's not how we'd like to direct our, our services, right? We'd like to make sure we're reaching those who, who most need it and who could most benefit. Um, so there's a risk there without transition. Um, and as I mentioned, there's this sort of diminished value of the FSP intervention. If we're working with people who, um, you know, maybe are doing uh, relatively well compared to where they started. So there's less impact over time for that group of clients. And um, really what we end up doing is offering a lower quality service. Our services are less good for those who are really in the target population. They, they may wait longer. They may have less uh, access to the providers that can help them. So the, the, the really uh, in need clients that we most want to serve uh, are, are not, uh, are done a disservice in this uh, model without uh, discharge. And you know, for many of us, we go into this work because we really are wanting to um, come into a situation where a client needs us. They they need us to maintain, uh, uh, kind of get their get back on their feet, get back into a situation that's steady. And I think for many of us, we would not feel as satisfied with our work if we were uh, uh, never letting go of some of our clients. I'm really interested in your thoughts about this. Um, we're gonna say a little more about what makes it hard to transition people out of, out of programs. I get it. It really is hard to let go of clients, especially clients who've done really well. Um, so I'm very interested in your, your, your thoughts about uh, why you'd work on that and do this since it's uh, uh, really pretty tricky. Um, kind of the main takeaway is that we, we don't really have good information about who's gonna do well after they transition. Mm -hmm. So there's really only been one study, one controlled study of a transition from an assertive community treatment team like FSP. So controlled study means that it's randomized. Mm -hmm. So within a program, you actually randomize all the clients you know, match, they get matched in that way in terms of severity, and you randomize them to uh, either being discharged or um, uh, 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 or receiving the ACT intervention for a brief period of time, and then follow up after that. So the way they did this study was they took 130 clients and they randomized them to usual discharge from the hospital. These were long-stay hospitals in the, in the, in the 70s and, and early 80s. They've been in the hospital for a long time. Clients were randomized to usual discharge or to assertive community treatment. Those who were in the assertive community treatment program only received 14 months of that intervention. And 
both groups were followed after 14 months. And those who had been in the ACT intervention after uh, leaving the hospital did much better. So only 6% of those were readmitted to the hospital, whereas those clients who left the hospital without ACT, 58% of them went back to the hospital. Mm -hmm. But even after ending assertive community treatment after 14 months, both groups got worse in the second 14 months of follow-up. Mm -hmm. So the interpretation here was that um, those that need intensive support outside of the hospital, they're going to continue to need it. And discontinuing the intervention is probably not a good idea, can result in uh, negative consequences, negative outcomes. And for this reason, the initial model in assertive community treatment described it as time unlimited, potentially for someone's lifetime. You, you, you've been identified as needing a high level of service, and that will be the situation for the rest of your life if you need it. And so ACT was defined as time unlimited. Now, we're all aware that since then, um, many interventions like FSP or ACT, uh, they're not time unlimited. People don't stay in the program forever. We may not want them to stay in the program forever. It's better for them to, to move forward if they're able. But we don't have any controlled studies that tell us exactly who can leave the program and do well. So this is just a list of some studies where they observed what happened when clients left a program like uh, FSP. Um, so in the first one, about two-thirds of them who graduated, they'd done well in the program. About two-thirds of them had good outcomes at the end. About a third, 32.4%, had negative outcomes after graduating. So two-thirds did well, a third didn't do so well. Um, and the second study here from 1998, among those clients who were graduated over a couple of years, only three and a half percent had to come back into the program. Something happened, they weren't doing well, they needed to come back into the ACT program, only 3.6 percent. So that's pretty small, actually, small uh, readmission rate for this group of graduates, and more than half of them maintained a high level of functioning even after they left the program. Again, similarly, in the study by McRae and colleagues in 1990, uh, all the clients in the study received five years of an ACT intervention, and then they were discharged to usual care. So, you, you know, similar to what DMH usual care uh, clinical services are like, and after two years, half of those clients who left the ACT program were stable. They were still doing well. Um, similarly, another study from 2010, 2,000 clients who left an ACT program, only 6% of them returned to intensive services. So I can look at this as glass half full, glass half empty. There's a small percent who appear to need to come back to intensive services, um, at least in the period of follow-up in these studies. So that seems good. Maybe many clients can do well after discharge. Yet, it's a little worrisome if you say only about half of them really do well. So, you know, about half do worse. Um, hard to know. But some clients can graduate successfully. Um, it, it, of course they can. <laughs> it's a little bit of a commonsensical statement, but of course clients can graduate and do well after they leave a program. The problem is we really don't know who is going to do well. So out of all of these studies, observational studies, um, mostly observational information, it doesn't help us a lot. And even when it's been explored, what's the criteria? You know, do you have to have X number of months of being stably housed? Do you have to have a certain number of hospital days? Um, do you have to, you know, be uh, working or do you need to be living independently? Um, we really don't know what the magic combination of client features in that predict, that predict that someone is going to do 
well. We don't really know what equals readiness for clients. Um, except in the circumstance, I think, this client I mentioned, who in the first six months really suddenly starts to get things into place, starts to feel much more stable. Um, there is evidence to suggest that those clients are going to do well when they leave the program. So you might keep that in, in mind as a, uh, a rule of thumb, that in that first six months, if someone makes a lot of gains, they're probably going to do well when they graduate. Yeah, thank you for the observation in the chat. Healthy social relationships, community integration, managing triggers to substance use. Exactly. So transition decision-making, um, not so simple. So uh, pretty complex clinical skill, as I will show you. And there's not very much scientific evidence to guide us. But um, one of the things that we do want to pay attention to is that Transitioning out of FSP is a little bit of a contradictory idea. We need to uh, wrap our minds around a, a couple of paradoxes that are uh, uh, underlying this uh, transition from FSP. And that is simply that one of the things FSP does is you catch people when they fall and you wrap yourself around them. And so the idea of sort of moving them out of the program, it just goes against the whole uh, approach of intensive engagement and uh, the, the really uh, person-centered way that we want to work with clients when they're in FSP. So clients get into FSP because no other program could maintain them, um, and, and maintain their engagement and care. Um, so why are we thinking about transitioning them out? Um, moreover, we spend a lot of time in programs like FSP encouraging clients to get very involved in their clinical care, right? To get very involved in treatment. And we really want them to feel connected to the program because we know that it helps them to succeed. Um, the third problem with transition, of course, is that it's very hard to know whether someone's doing well because they're in the program. <laughs> and so if you take the program away, how do you know they're still going to do well? And I think the final challenge here is that um, in making progress in FSP, you kind of think, well, that means we should continue it, right? If something's really working for someone, we don't tell them to stop it. If they're working, uh, uh, the meds are taking are working for them, we don't say, great, you're feeling well, you can stop your medications. And so FSP is kind of similar. If it's working, why would we pull it away from someone? Um, so these are just some of the contradictions that come up for providers when we start to think about transition. Um, and I frame these as some questions that come up, and they're commonsensical questions. It's natural to ask these kinds of things uh, when we're thinking about graduating clients. How do I support treatment engagement while working on graduation? I want to encourage my client to be engaged in their treatment, and at the same time, I'm asking them to leave it. How do I square that circle? Um, how can I talk to my client about this as a positive accomplishment um, rather than some sort of punishment for doing well? Um, how is my client going to do without us? As I mentioned, we just don't know. Um, and then I think there's this challenge that comes up frequently around discharge. Who do I discharge? Do I discharge a person who's really doing well, <laughs> who's made a lot of progress, or do I discharge a person who's sort of kind of made some progress, doing okay, but not really benefiting from the program, right? Maybe I should keep the person in who's still making progress and discharge the person who's kind of made some progress and they've stopped. Um, and then there's this last question. It's really, I think, for us, is a, one of the most um, important ones to think through. Um, I feel like I'm abandoning my client. I'm, you know, the step-down program I have available, they don't work as hard as we do. And they're not going to talk to my client for as long as I get to talk to my client. And they're not going to go out and see him when he needs it. And uh, how can I abandon my client who has been left by so many people already in his life and, and uh, already so vulnerable? How can I uh, encourage that client to leave my program? So um, these are among the questions that's very important to talk 
through with other team members, to think through together, expect these questions, articulate these questions, and, uh, and, and work through how you'd like to answer that. Um, yeah, so I'm looking at Salvador's question in the chat. I recently transitioned a client to another team member, a community health worker. And the question was immediately, why are you doing this to me? So I think that gets at it, right? Like clients are going to be like, what did I do wrong? Or, you know, how come I get to suffer again? Or I'm the one who has to have this happen to me. Um, it's a tricky conversation to have with a client for sure. I think the other thing is that for many of us in FSP, uh, look, most clients really need you now. You know, the minority of them who are really might be ready to transition, and so it's identifying sensitively and skillfully that group that really are doing well that can be difficult. Um, so here's a case manager saying, if I ever had somebody at that point where they were ready, I would have no problem letting them go. I've heard of that. I just haven't really absorbed them a lot. Um, the good idea to discharge clients who are appropriate, most of our guys are really not ready for a transition. And I imagine many of you thinking of your caseload, similar thoughts may come to mind, uh, you know, especially right now. Challenging time for everyone, fewer and fewer resources for our clients. If you really have your client in the best place possible, um, it might be hard to feel like your client is really ready for transition. I think that's a, a natural thought to have. Okay, I think the other thing we have to come to terms with around this is we may never be certain who is ready. Clients may be benefiting a lot more from our services than we're aware, and it's only once they leave the service that we see. Um, so many case managers that have worked a lot on transition, have done this a lot, have exactly this observation. Boy, he was doing great totally fine, everything going really well. And then, you know, we left the program and there was an altercation. And uh, out of the blue, completely surprising, not what we thought. And um, before that, I really thought we're not doing anything for this person. And, and this happens. We just, we have no great way of predicting exactly when uh, decompensations take place. And we may never really know who's uh, benefiting from the program. So there are a few ways to think about markers of readiness for transition. So these become very important in the midst of all of this uncertainty and, uh, and the emotional challenge of transition. Very important to try to think concretely wh what makes a client potentially ready to transition. And I'm grateful for the chat. Many of you have already sort of identified a few features of this, things you'll see listed here. Um, stable symptoms, being involved in activities, uh, employment or other social activities in the, in the community, living in a, the least restrictive housing environment that you think would be possible for them, um, and they're able to independently attend to mental and, mental and physical health follow-up. Um, these are four mm, kind of big markers that might indicate readiness. So there are actually three scales. I'm going to tell you about all three of them, only because they're very similar, and you may want to use a scale like this um, in thinking about readiness. One is called the Community Living Adaptation Scale. And it's available at the link below. Um, easy scale, it's 14 items. And it's the kinds of things you would expect. Their housing is stable, they have social support, they're integrated in the community, they're managing their activities of daily living, if that's grocery shopping, other things, they're doing that well. They're managing their money. They're able to take personal responsibility for things that happen to them. They're managing substance use. They're able to recognize when they're not doing well. Kind of prodromes is the word for that here, where maybe their symptoms are a little worse. They can recognize that. 
uh, ahead of time. And they're able to use mental health services, haven't been in the hospital, and um, they're, they're managing their medication well. So here's another scale. You'll recognize the way that readiness is conceptualized here. It's called the Transition Readiness Scale, designed for ACT teams in New York State. Um, it has seven domains here. It's one of those scales you just rate from one to five. Treatment engagement, housing stability, taking their medications, not using emergency services, no high-risk behaviors, and this includes things like suicidality, homicidality, things like that, substance use, police contacts, and other forensic involvement. Uh, again, markers of transition readiness. And a final scale is a very similar name. It's called the ACT Transition Readiness Scale, the ATR. Um, similar but slightly different domains here that the client has some structure in their daily life, their symptoms are stable, their housing is stable, they have some insight, benefits are in place. Um, compliant with medications, uh, adherent, it should say, to medications, uh, able to keep up with appointments um, and, and not needing hospitalization. Uh, uh, a similar set of domains here. Now, none of these scales are intended to tell you who's ready. Um, there isn't a threshold on any of them. Like if you get a 10 rather than a nine, that means you're gonna do well. Um, we don't have any predictive data about any of these scales to say, you know, this scale predicts that this person will do well in two years. We don't have uh, 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 an, an ability to really know um, in a de determining way how to use these scales. So keep that limitation in mind. These scales should never be used on a team to sort of have everyone rate all of their clients and whoever gets the highest score is discharged from the program. That is not an evidence-based based way to use these scales because they've never been tested like that. They don't predict how someone does, but they're intended to give you a feel for the sort of things that are likely to make the person ready for transition. Um, what I'm going to do in, the, in this next section is actually talk uh, about how to use these scales as a team. So what, what, what would we, you know, what are they for if they don't actually have uh, predictive validity? Um, what can we use these scales for? Let me pause for a minute and take some questions. Ah, what if you have a client that you know is not ready, but they insist that they are? Um, so I think this might be a client who, uh, I mentioned this at the very beginning, but what about those clients who sort of, they're just kind of disengaged. You, you, you wish you could get to them more, give them more, um, interest them in what you have to offer. They're not doing great. They're not doing terribly, but they're not doing great. They're really not making progress. They're kind of disengaged. That's a, a little, that's my word for this category of clients. Do we discharge those clients? So actually, what I'm going to talk about in this next section, the mock discharge, it's designed to get someone ready to go, but actually it could work super well for the person you're describing or someone like this who's somewhat disengaged because a mock discharge, well, you, you, you'll hear about it. You see what you think. But the idea of a mock discharge is you say, okay, we, we, don't, we don't discharge someone tomorrow. What we do clinically is we say, okay, you may be ready for discharge. Let's work together for three, four, five months. Let's try it out, see if we can get all the pieces in place. If at the end of that, it still seems like you're really ready to go, great, you're ready. But maybe at the end of that, we'll decide, no, nah, it's not the time, not quite ready. So um, I will say clinically, we always worried, and it made sense once we looked at the data, it made sense to worry about the clients that leave under those circumstances, as opposed to the clients who are really able to engage with you to prepare for readiness. The clients who are disengaged and, 
And the team's like, okay, fine, whatever you say you want to go, go. Those are the clients who actually, they don't, they don't do as well. So there are reasons to worry. And it might be you could use this mock discharge process with them to keep them feeling like they're working on transition with you and they're, they're practicing it. I should go through the process so you can see what you think. Okay, so I'm going to talk about teams a lot in the weeks to come. I think this is a thing to do as a team. So if you have uh, some FSP teams really operate as a team, they might meet every day or a lot of days a week. Everyone comes together to talk about all their clients. If you're on a team where you're working a little more, maybe with one or two case managers, pull together whoever knows your client and begin to talk about discharge and discharge readiness. One way you can do that is just to begin to follow. See if you can um, collect some data, some information on any of the clients who leave your program. Um, and even going back, what about clients who left our program before? How are they doing? I would recommend that any team talk about discharge transitions, transition readiness, talk about it every six months. That doesn't sound very frequent. And it's not actually, but six months is, is good. Every six months you can have a, 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 an intentional, lengthy conversation about who on the team may be ready for discharge. And then you take six months to work that through. You get follow-ups on it. But every six months you want to think hard about everyone on the team who might be ready for transition in the next six months. And it's really a question of, how much risk should your team tolerate? Risk meaning that the client is gonna leave the program and not do very well. Um, maybe, uh, how, how much, when is that the right thing to do, the right thing to do for the client? Um, that's a deliberation to have on a regular basis. Um, the readiness scales, the ones that I mentioned, those are great to use to prompt team debate. So one thing you might do is have the team members complete one of the scales for their clients or some number of their clients. Maybe they could pick two or three or four who might be ready. Have them do the scale. And then you can talk about that together as a team. And you might say, my client did great on this domain and actually pretty well over here and here and here and here. Gosh, really, according to the scale, really looks ready. But you know what? The last time we did this, XYZ happened. Um, so using the scale just to begin the dialogue, not to tell you who's going to be discharged or not, but just as a way to think through what you know about readiness. It's a great idea at a setting to have a champion for these kinds of issues that, that easily sort of fall under the radar. We, you know, it's not the high priority. It's we, we're in the middle of things now. If you've got someone who really is um, thinking about this, maybe even collecting some data, willing to raise the issue, oh, we're getting up to time to have an, our, our twice yearly big meeting, and oh yeah, so-and-so, you mentioned you were gonna talk to your client about this, what happened. A champion can really help to, to keep this um, in dialogue on the team. Step-down programs. So we all feel that the clinicians we're going to hand our clients off to are not able to provide the high level of care that we provide. We all feel that <laughs> no matter what context we're in. And yes, there are times when it's true. It's, it's sometimes it's true. You don't have a great step down. You know the program you might be handing off to. They have a lot more clients on their caseload, a lot less time. They can't see clients as frequently. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. And yet, maybe you can try in all kinds of ways to build some bridges with those step-down programs, get to know the clinicians there, really work to collaborate with them so that when your client, um, you know, is having a challenge in their new program, that person is going to pick up the phone and talk to you. So just working to build those ties can help to strengthen whatever's available to you as a step-down program. The other things that can work as a team are to do things like um, parties, a celebration, a graduation party, 
or one thing we really got a lot of traction from is having those clients who um, have graduated from the program come back and talk to current clients. If you ever do like a peer group or an outing day, have a graduate come back and tell their story if they'd like to do that. Talk a little bit about um, what, the, what the FSP program meant to them, what they gained from it, where they are now. Um, that can be very impactful for, for clients in the program. Okay, so um, these are actually uh, things that we ought to do with clients before they transition out of the program. So we should engage with them in a process of planning. We should work with them to identify the resources and supports they need for the transition. We should make referrals, link them to treatment and other services. We should work with family, friends, other social support, and other social service providers in their world to problem solve with them, anticipate some future challenges, think with them about what we might be able to do to prevent or mitigate anything that might happen down the road. And we should set up a procedure for staying in touch. That means maybe you wanna get an email from your clients, maybe once a month. Maybe you want them to call you in three months or six months. It should be explicit, uh, expectation, uh, some plan about staying in touch. And the last thing we should do is to try to meet with them, go with them to see their new providers, if we're able to do that, can make an enormous difference. Um, so this is actually, in a nutshell, the mock discharge process. So we call it a mock discharge because it doesn't mean you have to discharge the person. You're just going to try it out. And you're going to take three or six months. You're going to talk about it, think about it, do some problem solving, test out what the new service providers would be like. And at the end of that, you don't have to leave the program. So there's no commitment to this. It doesn't mean you're committed to an eventuality in any way. It doesn't have any consequences for the client, no matter how it goes. And so you're just going to explore. You're going to see how it goes. And in that frame, it's um, much less of a action to the client. It's much more of a thing you're going to work on together. And you'll see how you feel as you go, the two of you together. You'll see what it feels like. And you can always decide it's not the time not ready. So it's a way to practice. Um, and it's a way to prove even as you practice that you're going to be there for the client. Your intention is to be there for the client. And you know, if things don't go great, you'll still be there for the client. If they go great and the client is ready to go, terrific. You're still going to be there for the client because you're still going to keep in touch. You'll want to hear from them. Um, so it just helps to practice. That's what we called mock discharge. So when the team maybe identifies some clients who may be ready for discharge, um, you say, all right, let's try it. Let's do a mock discharge. You're going to come back to the team on a regular basis, let them know how it's going, but you're going to do this over three or six months with the clients. And I've uh, divided it into three phases, uh, three to six months, you know, four or five months, something like that. So in the first phase, you're planning and preparing. And you're doing a lot of internal work, actually. You're clarifying for yourself. Why is this client ready in my mind? Um, what do I think transition might help my client to do? And I'm going to begin to think, what are the supports I need to be sure to put into place? What, what more does the client need outside of me that I might be able to link in um, while we're in this planning? Age. I'm going to think a lot about what might be up for me in transitioning this client, how it might feel for me. And I'm going to start to think, how is the client going to feel about this? Um, how can I uh, communicate this? What can I say that might make it uh, feel mm, like it makes sense to the veteran? Um, I won't know to, to the client, <laughs> there's my language from the VA. Um, 
how, how might the client feel about leaving the program? I won't know until I talk to the client, have that conversation, but I can start to think about it. And then I set a date. It's really quite important to say, this is going to take four months. Let's aim for uh, Feb you know, March. March 1st is going to be our date, March 1st, 2021. Let's think about that as a potential discharge date. So then what we do in phase two, we talk to the client about the possibility, about what a mock discharge is, why you think the client is ready for discharge, um, what you think might come from it, why it makes sense from the client's point of view. Obviously, if all you can come up with is that your program needs the space, there's nothing in it for the client, you might want to step back a little. <laughs> Maybe this isn't the right process to pursue. So what is it the client might gain from this? Um, at the very least, a sense of accomplishment and having made gains. And, um, you know, sometimes it's great to talk about all the clients you've worked with and how, how this particular client has differed in their ability to take advantage of what's offered and, and, and build new resources for him or for herself and so forth. You've done the preparatory work of picking the words that are true and right for you. And that's what you share with the client at this point. And if the client you think might want to call it a graduation, that's great. Use that word. Um, for other clients, you know, it's important to not be sugarcoating things. You just, it's a discharge or it's a disenrollment. You're leaving the program. If the client prefers that language because that's going to uh, allow them to further their understanding of what this means to them, that's great. Use that language. Um, so that first dialogue with a client is really critical and you're going to stay engaged with that client about it and you're going to talk about discharge. You're not going to avoid it. What could be worse as a client than hearing one week, oh, I guess they're going to kick me out of the program. Right? That's what you walk away with as a client the first week. But if you come back the next week and your clinician is there again saying, gosh, I'm really curious about what you thought about our discussion last week. And the client's like, yeah, I thought you said maybe I, I was being kicked out of the program. And then you can correct. You say, oh my goodness, I didn't mean that at all. You're definitely not being kicked out of the program. In fact, just the opposite. We really want to engage with you to see if this is the right step for you. Um, so avoiding the topic, it's, it's easy to do because there's so much to talk about. It's actually super important to just come back to it and mention it, even if it's uh, brief when you see the client. So, of course, then you're going to work on identifying solutions. How are we going to manage if this happens? What do you think you need for this? What might make this thing easier after you leave? Um, Try out all those solutions. Come up with some plans for what might happen for the person after you leave. A big one is like, what are you going to notice? What will you notice that will let you know you're not doing well? What's the first thing that happens? Do you know, often we just talk about this with clients anyway, and we should, you know, so clients can say, yes, I know when I start to not be able to fall asleep, and if that goes on for five or six days, I know I'm in trouble. Helping the client to articulate what it is that lets them know they need a little more support can be very important. And the last thing I have here in phase two is to try out the new clinical situation together. So if you can go with that client to, their, uh, to meet their next provider, um, do it. Or if you can just even get on the phone together with that person, have a connection, link that client to the new provider, really critical because then you can reflect with the client afterward. What do you think of that visit? How does that person seem? Did she seem nice to you? Do you think it's going to be easy to talk to her? Seem trustworthy? What did you think of that? Um, how did the office feel to you? How is it going to be to get there? You can reflect on all the things that happen in that visit with the new provider. And then finally, the last phase where you're participating with the client in this transition, whatever it is, uh, set a plan for staying in touch. How are you going to communicate? How often? In what circumstances? Phone, email, come back and visit in person. 
so on and so forth. Come back and tell the group about your success. Come reflect with us after the fact. Um, set a plan, know what it is, write it down so that you're, you stick to it afterward because you're going to be busy when this client leaves a new client. So make sure you stick to the plan, you know what it is. So meaningful for clients to be able to be in touch with them after they leave the program. Um, and then finally, you make this decision. Is the client going to leave the program or stay in the program? Either one is fine. Think through what you've learned, finalize the decision, set the date, and, um, and then if they stay, concretize what's been learned. You know, there's been uh, an advance in learning for both of you through this process of understanding which supports are still necessary, what makes the client nervous about leaving, and uh, come to an understanding of what you're gonna do about that. Jason, I noticed your question in the chat about self-determination, and I don't know if you um, wanna say a little more about what you're thinking there. Really no, I was, um, that was regarding when she was talking about client insisting on leaving uh, the FSB. I said, wouldn't that be up to self-determination? Yep. It's a good question. Would it, would it be? So you want to support the client's self-determination? For sure. And the client says, I don't want to be in this program anymore. So what do you do? Uh, maybe provide linkages or referrals to other agencies or they might be comfortable with resources. Yeah. Yeah. And even before that, what are you, what are you thinking about? Um, I'm thinking, what if this client, they're really annoyed with you because you challenged them the last time you met about their substance use or something, or they're on a new medication and they hate it because it, it has bad side effects and they feel really tired. And, uh, and they say to you, I want to leave the program. Um, or they're actually really very symptomatic, suddenly a, a lot more delusional. They seem like they're distracted. They might be hearing voices and they're saying, forget it. I'm out of here. So in a so, way, you want to go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm thinking the first thing you'll do, and we often do it implicitly without saying it, you're going to evaluate that client and, and decide whether their message about wanting to leave the program is safe and, and whether it's the message they're sending. Maybe they're actually saying something else. Maybe they're saying, I'm really mad at you all. Or, you know, you've, you've really hit on something important. And, and so maybe their message is other than I want to leave the client. So you're going to evaluate that client first, kind of figure out what might be going on and if it's safe. Um, and in that circumstance, if it's safe, they really are clear about it, then you're right. Then there's uh, clients have a right to, to make those choices. Or we could um, actually do an intervention of sitting down, engaging the client on the weighing the pros and cons, uh, reflecting on the achievements and accomplishments, uh, kind of um, focusing actually on uh, challenging the distorted thinking by uh, weighing the pros and cons of your decision uh, and, and, and making a list, creating a list of pros and cons with the member or the client we call them members, um, mm -hmm. as to, mm -hmm. and, and see which one will weigh more. Is it, is it a positive decision or is it a, is it a negative, a negative decision? Yeah. Really great thought. And as, as you were speaking, I was really struck by um, the utility of, being able to say to clients, um, I hear what you're saying. I hear you really, you, you, you know, you feel, you're feeling like you don't want to be a part of this program anymore. What I have to do before I can discharge a client is these things. I have to engage in a process with you 
of planning, it doesn't have to be months, but I'm required as a clinician to plan with you, as you say, pros and cons, what might be coming next. I've got to work with you to identify resources and supports. I have to know these things are in place. So we have a responsibility to uphold self-determination for our clients, but we also have a responsibility to do many of these kinds of things before discharging them from the program. And if that becomes just sort of a policy on your team, it buys you a little bit of time to explore with this client. Well, what's going on? Are you sure there's nothing more you want from us? Um, nothing more we could support you in. Um, it, it, it gives you a way to communicate that as a, a, a requirement that's beyond your control. You, you, you just have to do these things before someone can leave. Dr. Blomney, this is, um, you know, I had in the past really frame grad uh, disenroll or discharge to graduation. Um, embracing a client to graduate FSP to next level of care. So I think that's a helping a client to think about graduate that program that's really well and of course um, sometimes clients take a long time to process so like a little um, meeting um, how you're going to graduate that you know, FSP program to maybe um, education program or some other program so and also helping clients to see uh, you know, maybe staff from lower level care. So that's also um, helpful too. Those are really great thoughts that um, many people would say you should start to talk about this the moment the client is enrolled in the program. Start to talk right away. What do you think graduation is gonna be like for you? What's it gonna be like to move to a lower level of care? Um, I think that could work sometimes. For some clients, you're working so hard to get them comfortable being in the program. It might be hard to, in every circumstance, talk about graduation early on. Um, but it's good for all of us to keep it in mind early on. I think the other thing, graduation is a great concept, and it, it's, it's, it's accurate. It's an incredible accomplishment to meet treatment goals, to work through FSP. Um, but it's also a loss and it is discharging the client. And, and so I think in some circumstances, um, we don't want to be euphemistic about it. You know, we don't want to pretend this is a celebratory situation. It might be kind of a little good, a little bad. There might be some ambivalence about it, and uh, and that's fine. Doesn't have it doesn't have to feel all good. It doesn't have to feel celebratory. You can be proud of it, though, as you say. Really good thing for clients to be proud of. Um, so for some clients, maybe using a different word besides graduation would help them to acknowledge their ambivalence about it. What do you do with a client? You go through this whole process, you get to the end of it, and you're like, person is so ready. <laughs> They're so ready. Everything's in place. And the client's like, no, I'm not ready. <laughs> and you're really in a disagreement about the decision. What do you do? Yeah, I don't have a magic answer, except that I think what you've got in that situation is months of work together where you were doing the footwork together for several months so you're aware the pieces are in place on some level the client might be aware that the, the pieces are in place as well but it's natural in that last moment to be anxious all of a sudden and to feel like oh i can't do this i'm i'm not i'm not ready to do it um, and so it might just be that the next week you need to come back to it again and be like, gosh, I've been thinking about it. I just, I feel like really you're doing great. Things really are, they're, they're, they're all set up. I think you're good, right? Come back to it again, rehearse again, your follow-up plan. You're not disappearing from the client's life. You're just changing your relationship 
to the client. Sometimes you're becoming more of a real person to the client um, as opposed to a therapist or a clinician to them. So that can be a new phase for you. Sometimes just coming back to it in the next week is really important. Um, there are clients who, uh, and you know this from your work, you realize over time that what they need in their treatment is, a, is more limit setting. There are some clients who really need limit setting and they need for someone else to help them understand what the structure and the framework is for their treatment. So these are the clients who would call you 15 times a day if they could and call you and give you the update about trying to make a decision about what to buy in the grocery store. They need you at their side every moment. And really what you need to do and what works best for them is to set limits around how you're gonna work with them, keep yourself to a structure with them, and that actually helps them to feel um, more contained. And so for clients like that, um, where abandonment is really very, very scary, um, but it, the containment can be very important for them. You might want to stick with your dates anyway, even if the client says, no, 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 please don't. I'm not ready. At that point, you can really shore them up by letting them know how confident you are. You've been through this process with them. You've worked through all the things that might happen. You know what you'll do if things don't go well. You set a date. You made a decision. It's the right thing to do to go through with it. So there can be situations like that. You really uh, you want to stick to your decision. Um, but I think the aim of the process and doing it intentionally, keeping on your radar with the client over those months, is to be ready for that conversation and to uh, have uh, the data that you need about how things have gone um, so that you can engage with the client around that. Okay, any other questions? This has been wonderful. I would actually really look forward to having a bit more of a um, case-based dialogue with you about this issue. Uh, so to bring up particular client scenarios, um, what to do, how to think about transition in particular client scenarios, that would be really fun. Um, and any suggestions that you have about um, other things you wanna hear, about this process, I really appreciate that. Um, hello, I just wanted to say thank you. First of all, this is very helpful um, and feels very important right now. Um, our team right now, so I work for a homeless FSP team um, and our company also has, um, they now call it a housing FSP, um, but it used to be called the house FSP. So we have a, a pretty significant amount of clients who have um, accessed their permanent housing recently and um, that whole transition of when do they transfer um, it's very new for us um, we haven't really dealt with that yet so um, I think it's helpful just for us to consider these aspects more so than just, okay, they're housed, you know, it's time for them to go to the house FSP. Um, especially since for a lot of our clients, when they actually do access their housing, we see a lot more um, exacerbated mental health symptoms, actually, um, or just a different type of presentation. So, uh, I feel these will be really important conversations to bring back to my team. Um, yeah, because this, I this is the first yeah. time we're doing this. Oh, that's great. I appreciate you bringing that up very much. I, um, we're, we're working on some training on what's called critical time intervention, which is really um, just designed for kind of precisely what you're talking about, but it's, it's really just a mode of engaging with clients around transitions of any kind, um, housing transitions or service transitions. And the key to it is to name the transition ahead of time, you know, identify what it is, it's gonna be a challenge and a change, and then actively problem solve around what that's going to be like beforehand. 
and then follow the client through that transition and then follow up afterward and, you know, get things settled. And it takes months. And so it's very similar to this mock discharge process where you just, you name it, you acknowledge it, you process it, you problem solve, you do it and you stay together afterward. Um, it's the same process and it is, you're right, it's, uh, uh, it's it's critical to the clients. It's pretty hard to implement sometimes because programs will all of a sudden, you know, something needs to change. But if you can give clients that few months of being with them before and during and after the transition, it can make a huge difference. So we're actually hoping to do a, a, a bit more training on that on transitions generally, how to help, help support clients through transitions. So it sounds like that would be relevant for your team too. My question would be, if we started a transition process with a member, things were going well, and of course, things fell through at the last minute. Example, one of our members, COVID happened, um, rightfully so, and now we're taking step, step backs. What would be the proper way to support them and re-engaging re the transition with them, knowing that, I don't want to say the first time was a failure because um, external situations out of our control happen, yeah. but what would be the yeah. best way to go about it to re-engage them with that transition idea? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. It's all the things going on around COVID where we have to figure out some way to get back to the goals we had beforehand, right? And have them not be too scary for clients. I think I'd probably be interested in, if it's possible, beginning by congratulating the client for all the hard work they did before COVID, that all the things they'd put in place, those are still accomplishments, even mm -hmm. though an external event um, uh, got in the way, the, the, the client accomplished a lot. And uh, and then just sort of exploring how much of that uh, the client wants to get back to get you know get back to that exploration. Um, it's a, it's actually you might be able to use the fact that we're all going through that to a certain extent. You know, there's a, a bit of uncertainty. Are things going back to the way they were, or is there a new normal that we're entering? None of us really know. But um, in a way, you could say to the client, you know, for a while, we, we were dealing with what was a crisis and there was just nothing else going on. But now we're kind of realizing, oh, yeah, we're actually still, our lives have gone on. We're still in the same flow of things as what came before. Um, and, you know, remember where you were right before COVID happened. We'd done all this great work and you were ready for this and that. And um kind of, kind of begin to get them back into the everyday not crisis mode but the everyday mode got it okay just to re-engage and then i kind of assess which phase they're willing to go back into again so yeah that sounds really smart yeah get their get their read on what phase they want to go back to yeah where they think where they think they're ready to be awesome thanks so much for that Great. Good luck. <laughs>